That's the million dollar question. The challenge with this idea of a human centered approach to care has not been able to gain traction because it's a big idea. Nothing is worse than going through the healthcare system and being treated as if you were a number because it's a complete mismatch with your expectation as a patient. My labor took three days long. I was in and out of the hospital due to shift changes, and I ended up with sepsis and almost died giving birth. To put it very simply, what we had to start with is behavior change in ourselves. What is more critical than our health? This week on A Load of BS, A Practitioner's Guide to the BS Galaxy, we dive into this question. My name is Daniel Ross and I'm joined today by Dr. Ada Lee, healthcare expert at BE Works, and Dr. Musumi Sanigrahi, newly installed as Head of Commercial for Innovative Medicines at Fosun Pharma US, having spent the last eight years at Novartis Pharma. Now, this is the fifth episode in my series of very practical podcasts on the life of behavioral scientists, their challenges, their work, and how they think about the future of their industry. And I'm proud to say I'm doing all of this in harness with my partner, BE Works, one of the very best behavioral science consultancies in the world, co-founded by Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar. BE Works is a multidisciplinary team of behavioural scientists and psychologists working on complex challenges across financial services, to healthcare, to sustainability, helping businesses reimagining a future in which individuals flourish and prosper. And if you're interested in what they're up to, you might want to check out their Be Curious blog on their website at beworks.com or drop Warder, their CEO, and her team a line at info at beworks.com. If you've been listening to these podcasts over the last few weeks, you should know all that by now. Anyway, back to today, we are talking about how we move to a more human-centric approach to healthcare. Easy behavioural science wins for the healthcare industry now. Patient psychological barriers to articulating their symptoms, expectation effects and hopes for healthcare's future. As Basil Fawlty memorably said in Fawlty Towers, if you've got your health, what else matters? Let's see. Ada and Masumi, a huge welcome to you both to A Load of BS, A Practitioner's Guide to the BS Galaxy. I'm looking forward to diving into the BS of healthcare with you both, understanding where the challenges and opportunities lie. Welcome. Great to be here. Fantastic. Well, a pleasure to have you both here. Now, of course, healthcare is such a rich topic with a variety of stakeholders in play, from patients to prospective patients, from people who lead unhealthy lifestyles to the family and friends who surround them, and of course, carers, practitioners, and drug makers, of course. And I think if there's a subject layered with more cognitive biases, emotion, and entrenched behavior, well, I don't know it, because what's more important to us than our health in the end? Now, today's conversation is a little different, and all the better for it, as we have two perspectives on the subject. Ada from Works, may I say, representing the advisor, the guide to practical BS implementation, and then Masumi somewhere on the front line, and as of just now, newly installed as the head of commercial for innovative medicines at Fosun Pharma in the US, having spent the last eight years at Novartis Pharma. So firstly, congratulations on this new adventure. Just started, Masumi, I must say. Now, 
my hypothesis about your role, and you can tell me if I'm completely off point, and as a counterpoint to what Ada's doing at BE Works, is that, you know, while part of your role obviously reflects the job title, bringing new medicines to market, another part of it is to bring perhaps the behavioral science of medicine and healthcare into a large, very international, highly regulated and complex organization. I mean, is that a fair description of what's in front of you? Well said, well said. The way I look at it is the part of the job is actually bringing medicine to the market, but it's also about building the capability that would drive the best outcomes. And over time, we have learned that behavioral science has such a strong influence, as you said in the setup, in the entire ecosystem. So that's where my thinking lies. Got it. And Ada, am I positioning you fairly in this picture? Yes, yes, absolutely. I would say that I'm really a behavioral scientist by training. I have a PhD in psychology. So all I think about day and night is, you know, why do people behave in the way that they do? And why do they perceive the world in the way that they do? And why is it that sometimes people do not act in the way that's in their best interest? despite them knowing what's good for them. So it's really interesting to me to be working at the intersection of behavioral science and healthcare, because I think you said it very eloquently that nothing is more important to us as humans than our health. Yes, the notion that we make irrational, emotional, peculiar, quirky decisions is, of course, at the very heart of what we're going to now try and attempt to disentangle, the heart of behavioral science. So let me start by asking you, Masumi, about the relationship and interaction between behavioral science and pharma. You know, from your deep experience at Novartis and then before that at Dynapon Sumitomo Pharma, I mean, how does the pharmaceutical industry think about behavioral science? If you can make some generalizations, approximations, share some insights. You might be surprised by this, but the concept of using behavioral science to communicate with our stakeholders is actually fairly new to the pharma industry. And over time, we have realized that to drive the best outcomes, to have the uh, where we want to be, where we want to be, it's just not the game-changing data that gets us there. Behavioral science is something that's so critical to that. So overall, I think the pharma world is moving in the right direction, but it's still, I would say, it's pretty much in its infancy. So Novartis is a well-established company. It has existed for more than 160 years. It has tremendous capabilities. But in the recent years, it has really gone into the space of innovation like behavioral science, and it's in a great trajectory. When I think of Fosun, it's only a 40-year-old company, which is young, daring, and very ambitious, wanting to be in the forefront of innovation and leapfrog a lot of the processes that existed for a long time. So I believe we are in a great place to use behavioral science as a cornerstone as we build our capabilities. And as you move from one large organization to another, how do you imagine Fosun thinks about behavioral science versus Novartis? Are there any differences or are they both on the, at the, sort of the early stages of the process? I'm fairly new to Fosun, but I would say that Novartis has actually come a very long way in the last years in thinking of how to impact the ecosystem using behavioral science. And what I would say about Fosun is that we have a group of very open-minded people who dare to dream big. So we would think about bringing these capabilities in right from the beginning. 
Right. So that's a good start. And I mean, part of your challenge is about educating and enthusing them to think about it more and maybe consider what sort of the appropriate experiments might be to dip toe in the water. Ada, as the healthcare specialist at BE Works, then where do you see the next frontier for healthcare and behavioral science? I think the next frontier for for healthcare and behavioral science is that first and foremost, we need to start thinking about patients and healthcare providers as people. I mean, it sounds really obvious to say this, but I would say that up until, you know, the last 10 years, there's been interest and lip service to the idea that these are people. But really, when you look at how the system operates, it essentially treats patients as well as healthcare providers as numbers, as things that move through the healthcare process. This can be quite problematic because if we think about what do patients expect and what do healthcare providers expect, patients are humans, healthcare providers are humans, the end receiver of healthcare are humans and humans want to be treated as humans. So we need to think about what are the elements and things required for people to be able to feel that way and to change the way that the healthcare system operates so that there is this sort of human-centered or person-centered approach. And, you know, thinking about the patient as a whole means going beyond this is a person who has a disease. But I think in the work that Musumi and I have done, I think that's where we really clicked. These are people who have comorbidities. They have lives. They have family and social circumstances. They have emotional needs that need to be met. And so when we think about patients from that perspective and healthcare providers' perspective, we start to uncover what are these psychological needs that they have and start to think about how can we better support them in the treatment journey, both on the care provider side and the patient side. And I think that really is the next frontier of healthcare. Musumi pointed out, it still is its infancy. But when we start to think about the psychological aspect of what patients and healthcare provider needs, I think this opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of what the pharmaceutical industry can contribute and other players in the industry as well. If I can add to that, you know, what the brand that we were building It was not just a brand. We call it, it's a human purpose brand. Because, you know, looking at things at the point of transaction in the physician's office, it's just a point of transaction. There's a very big thing called life. So considering life and actually helping the patient or the physician in the context of it, as Ada described so nicely, the entire health journey is only going to bring us all to a better place. I want to just take a step back in a moment just to get a sense of the context of the collaboration that you refer to. But I think what you just said there before, Ada, was very apt. It really goes to the heart of the behavioral science argument as an antithesis to sort of classical economic theory, whether we're talking about healthcare or finance or any other area, because, of course, we are not homo economicus, as we often talk about the sort of fictional character, as in we are not wholly rational. We don't understand our preferences. We're not actually wholly trusting or necessarily know what price we may want to pay for things, which is at sort of the heart of the classical economic view. And it's so rather odd to sort of have to clarify that we are indeed human, sociable, cooperative creatures and not just numbers. Before just going into the case study, a follow-up question to the next frontier is what then needs to be done now? What needs to happen to move closer to this more human-centric approach that you refer to? That's the million-dollar question. I would say that the challenge with this idea of a human-centered or person-centered approach to care probably has not gained 
enough traction or has not been able to gain traction because it's a big idea. It means fundamentally changing the way that the healthcare system operates and thinks about the people within it. And it's easy to get carried away and get overwhelmed thinking about big problems with big solutions, which means you need big funding. You need lots of stakeholder buy-in. You need lots of people involved to make these changes and to work together. The question is really, is what are some of the things that can be feasibly implemented into the existing healthcare system today? And that's really where I think we will be able to make real-world impact. There's this tension between thinking of all the big ideas versus perhaps smaller things that we can do to make change today. So there's an interesting group that I came across, and I think they're called the 1% Steps for Healthcare Reform Project. And what's really interesting about this group is that they recognize that making huge changes to the way the healthcare operates doesn't necessarily mean big sweeping changes. It can mean small implementable changes that change things 1% at a time. But the idea is that if you've got 20 of those or 30 of those, then suddenly the 1% add up to 30% change in how the healthcare system operates. And I think that's a really powerful way of thinking about the next frontier is that to not get bogged down by this idea of we need to have big ideas, big sweeping changes that require a lot of money. I think we can start small. And I think that's what's so interesting about some of the work that I've done with Musumi's team when she was still at Novartis. It's what are some of the things that pharmaceutical companies can already start to do to start moving the needle 1% at a time? And I think that's really cool. The theory of marginal gains. But why don't, and whichever of you want to pick this up, tell us then a little more, go back to the beginning. Tell us about the, some of the work that you've done together and the kinds of interventions you've put in place that have perhaps altered a path of established action. You know, to put it very simply, what we had to start with is behavior change in ourselves. We have all done marketing for a very long time about products to customers, but getting away from the non-traditional way of thinking, as Ada described, like having big solutions for big problems, and this is how the world works, to thinking actually behavior change and also something which is a more ambiguous concept and we parse it out into the known stakeholders into the bigger version of the ecosystem and understanding what are some of the nuances that actually influence the way we behave, what our beliefs are and what is going to actually help drive our outcome. To be a little more specific, we are actually together, we are looking at disorder as an immunological disorder. And there's so many things that we found. And Ada, maybe you can speak to the patient side. From the HCP, for the healthcare professional side, you know, what often we found is that there are a lot of patients who are today very suboptimally treated. And because of the risk aversion that the physician has, there's like no effort to actually get them to a better place. And maybe, Ada, you can share the patient perspective from that journey. Yeah. You know, on the patient side, it was really interesting. One of the psychological barriers that we found on the patient side is when we think about patients who have autoimmune diseases, autoimmune diseases are really tricky for patients because these symptoms come and go. You have flare-ups, you have good days, you have worse days. And so it becomes a challenge for patients to get the right diagnosis for this disease and to be able to articulate very clearly to the physician what their problem even is. 
you know, recently I tried to book an appointment for my child's doctor and the appointment's not until three weeks from now, but it's for pink eye. His pink eye is going to be gone by the time I have that appointment. So what's the point? And this kind of experience is quite common. And for patients who have autoimmune disease, this becomes problematic because you're having a flare up now. You're having a really bad time. You call your doctor. I need to see you now. The appointment's not until two, three weeks from now. By the time you have this appointment, your flare up could have gone down. So the phenomenon that we found is that patients have rosy retrospection, which is that by the time you get to the appointment, you're feeling better. So your current state is not so bad. And so you use your current state to color how you felt in the past. And so you come to believe that, okay, well, Maybe it wasn't so bad three weeks ago. And this influences how you describe your symptoms. But this becomes a problem because if you can't get the right diagnosis with your physician, then the physician cannot prescribe the right treatment for you. And so what this led to is the idea of something about uh, in-the-moment documentation of symptoms and how can we develop this tool to help patients better record their symptoms in the moment so that by the time they have this appointment with the physician, they're able to show the record uh, accurately and remind themselves of how they really truly felt a few weeks ago before the appointment time. And be strong advocates for themselves because there's such a big patient influence that's often you know, unheard from the physician. This is such a fascinating example. I love the detail. Of course, a condition can also get far worse, if not get better. I mean, as an aside, in the UK, if I'm not mistaken, the recent government promise was that everyone would be able to have a GP, a general practitioner's appointment within two weeks, I think, which seemed terribly unambitious. That was the best that we could sort of hope for, that if we had an illness, we could see someone within a fortnight. I mean, that just doesn't reflect how real daily life works. But let's not get into the politics of it. But your story, both of you, reminded me of an earlier interview I did on this podcast with a scientist, David Robson. And I talked about cognitive biases at the start, and he wrote a book called The Expectation Effect. And tell me if you think if I'm on the right or wrong track here, but it's a book about how mindset can alter your life. And of course, you can't just unfortunately think yourself thinner, happier, healthier, or fitter. But we know, for example, that taking a placebo, even when you know it's a placebo, can still improve your health. Or people, for example, who believe aging brings wisdom, they live longer. So there's this idea that the brain is a prediction machine, that our minds have more control over our bodies than we ever imagined. So I wonder, either of you could jump into this. To what extent then do you think that our beliefs have the capacity to influence our health outcomes? You know, this question of expectation effects is really interesting because going back to the idea of what are these patient psychological needs, right? What are these cognitive biases that they have? You know, in general, I think you're right that as a whole, people want to feel like they're treated as whole persons, which includes having a sense of control over their own health outcomes. And nothing is worse than going through the healthcare system and being treated as if you were a number, because it's a complete mismatch with your expectation as a patient. Of course, I think it's easy to argue that many people now have been trained to be treated as such, but I think fundamentally it goes against 
the fundamental, you know, psychological need that people have to have control as they go through the healthcare system to be treated like a human. And I can give a personal example. You know, three years ago when I gave birth to my son, I had this rosy expectation that I would have control over my own birth. You know, I was asked to put together a birth plan and I was almost naive enough to think that they would honor this birth plan or try to anyhow. Anyway, what happened was that my labor took three days long. I was in and out of the hospital due to shift changes and I ended up with sepsis and almost died giving birth. And, you know, that got me really thinking about what are these expectation effects? I mean, first of all, I think I would have behaved differently if my expectation was that I would not be treated as a whole being and that I would want to have a sense of control over my birth outcome. And this opens up the conversation on thinking about how do we define health outcomes? You know, I think traditionally we think about health outcomes as number one, a quality of care and the actual delivery of care. And a few weeks ago, I had an interesting conversation with a professor at McMaster who's the founder of a company called Working Theory. So this is Dr. Paul Snowden. We started talking about what is this third missing element for these expectations. And it's really about compassion and empathy. You expect to be treated with compassion and with empathy for what your needs are, which includes having a sense of control over your outcome. And when we think about this third element of compassion and empathy, we start to open up this conversation of what are these psychological needs that people have, whether it's emotional or social. And I think to me, that's whole part of the equation of these expectation effects for people to consider your emotional, social needs as well. Yeah, it's quite shocking how inadequate at times our public health services can be, particularly at that time of one's children's birth. I fully empathize with all that. That's another subject which maybe we'll talk about another time. But actually, I wanted to share with you a little sort of anecdote and thought that came up in one of my recent conversations with your co-founder at BWorks, Dan Ariely, whose conversation we published a couple of weeks ago. And I think it builds on what we were just talking about, because one of his current areas of interest in research, which you may be familiar with, talking of expectation effects, is end of life and how perhaps counterintuitively we can make that chapter the best in people's lives. And apparently, Dan said that you know, the average time to die after a bad diagnosis is five years. And despite reality of pain and suffering, that when you have the notion of the last chapter, you suddenly have permission to do other things. We are reminded that we are, of course, human emotional beings, if that needed repeating, but we have to start focusing on the relationships that matter. We reflect on a life well lived. And then so palliative care starts to have far less to do with medical care. It's rather a time for a lot of psychology. And Dan told the story of a lady who in fact felt cheated when she got a life extension which is sort of curious, but perhaps not wholly impossible to comprehend. So it seems that there is a tremendous opportunity to make things better, therefore, for the frail body, not just through traditional means, but with behavioral science. And I'm going to direct this first to you, Masumi, because there seems to me then, as the natural follow-on from all of that, is that there's this tension between behavioral science and drugs companies, because the scientific method of problem solving wants to prove efficacy and output, rather than, say, showing off the brilliance of a more subtle placebo effect. So I wonder how drugs companies or the broader pharma world would sort of balance these notions of, say, cheap and simple optimization, i.e. using the power of the mind, versus the ongoing imperative for financial gain. After all, you're there to sell drugs. I think 
overall, it actually benefits us in a more holistic way. So a lot of the positive mindset, having the right expectation, thinking through the right things actually helps the pharma company in the long run. So if you think of what burdens our healthcare system today, it's the big chronic diseases, right? Like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, all of that. And we often, even as a drug company who had brilliant results in the clinical trials, we fail to replicate that in the real world because there's lack of control on what the patient is doing. So I think this holistic approach, the personalized approach that we are talking about, not only in the chronic diseases, but also in the mental health challenges that we have today, actually should benefit everybody as a whole, including the pharmaceutical companies. But at the heart of it, what we do is, you know, we find science-based solution, but I'm hoping over time we'll move over to the side where we are looking at it in a much more holistic approach. The appetite is there for sure. Great. Now I'm going to ask you both one final question. What do you both hope for most in healthcare in the next year? I would say that in the next year, the biggest changes I hope to see is a fundamental shift in mindset across the industry to person-centered care. And I think it's moving there. I think that the pandemic, if anything, one, if I may say this, one positive that came out of it is making extremely apparent how incredibly broken the healthcare system is, you know, whether it's in Canada or in the US or other parts of the world. And on the flip side, I think it's shown us not only how broken it is, but what the possibilities are. Look at how fast we were able to develop the vaccines, get them approved and start administering them across the nation. And I think that this challenge and the opportunities that the pandemic has highlighted to us has also brought up amongst the public that, you know, there's a huge desire. People are eager for change and people want this person-centered care. And I think that includes thinking about how we can increase people's willingness to consider new types of treatment, you know, overcoming the status quo of the past. And that's sort of the hope that I have for the next year or the next three, five years is an increased appetite, you know, amongst the public, amongst health officials, amongst the industry for change. And if we think about this at an even higher level, going beyond, you know, talking about drugs and the pharmaceutical industry, we can think about this in terms of shifting mindsets to preventative health behaviors more generally also. How can we answer the million dollar question? How can we get people to become healthier, especially with this aging population and chronic diseases? And, you know, I think mental health is part of that equation too, how to get people healthier. So that's kind of my hopes and dreams. And I think that behavioral science has a big role to play in all this because a shift in mindset and a shift in behaviors towards preventative health, at the core of it, it's all about behavior change and moving past existing habits, existing beliefs, and forming new behaviors that can be, that are sustained and maintained over time. Absolutely. I think anticipation and prevention is far superior to protection, at least if we can get a bit of a way down that road. I fully support everything you say there. Let me give you, Masumi, the last word. 
For me, my dream for next year and the years coming would be healthcare equity, starting from the time that we choose the patient for the clinical trials. And it's actually becoming very soon a mandate almost in this country. And from there to the delivery of the healthcare system, we see so much differences, right, when it comes to our socioeconomic status, all of that. To see that followed through, and I do believe behavioral science actually has a very, very big role to play in that to make an impact. Well, with that, Ada and Masumi, let me thank you both enormously for sharing your experiences and insights uh, with me today. I would say, you know, alongside topics like education and you know inequality, to touched on that just now, Masumi, healthcare really is just right up there in the opportunity and priority rankings for behavioral science to make a difference, whether this means you know access to sanitation, access to drugs, interventions which encourage us to have regular checkups and exercise or helping women remain dignified, clean and comfortable when they're having periods. And that's a subject which I've sort of thought about a lot and a subject we haven't touched on today, but I think behavioral science has an important role to play. Either way, there is lots to do across a wide spectrum. I think today just gives us a flavor of the challenges ahead. So thank you both again enormously. Thanks for having us. Great pleasure. Healthcare is a huge topic to cover in under 30 minutes, but having two voices with me today made it just about as rich in story and provocation as it could possibly be. So thank you to Ada and Masumi for bringing us into the detail of the challenges ahead with such eloquence and poise. Now, next week on the show, I welcome Preeti KS, who sets up and leads the behavioural science team at Grab in Singapore. For those of you who don't know, Grab is a super app which provides users with transportation, food delivery and digital payments. Think the Uber of Southeast Asia approximately. And it is Southeast Asia's first decacorn. You can look that up on Wikipedia and the biggest technology startup in the region. Now, whatever you think of this BS, you surely can't accuse me of a lack of diversity and guests and topics. And last but not least then, if you have an interest in how behavioural science is applied in real life, if you enjoyed today's chat with Ada and Masumi, and you think others would enjoy listening to these conversations, then please do share the podcast with friends, and perhaps even on social media. And why not give me a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts? As I always say, it is your support that makes us tick. Thank you, all the very best, and see you next time.